Well, if you have had the opportunity to be in worship with our church community over the past couple of weeks, you'll know that we're in the middle of a series called Why God? And we've been exploring various questions that have come about as we've been reading and following the story of Lamentations, the book of Lamentations, which is a poetic book and it has a a number of topics. Most of them are laments, hence the name of the book. And so all these different questions have been popping in and out of our minds, and as they've been coming up, we've been following that theme and asking those questions. And so last week, if you were able to either be here or listen to the message online, we looked at chapter 2, a brief passage in chapter 2, and it describes God as not as a God of mercy, which is what we're accustomed to reading about the Lord, but we actually hear God described as a God without pity. And the Lord compares, or the poet compares the Lord's actions to the movements of an enemy. And within this passage in chapter 2, we hear some extremely strong language. Language of warfare, language of violence. And so we ran with this question of, well, what do we do with all of this violence that we read about? Violence not here just in this passage, but all of the different wars and bloodshed and, and uh, threats and fulfillments, all this violence that we read throughout the Old Testament, how are we to understand this? And as I tried to respond to this question, uh, more questions came up. But one specifically was this understanding of, well, because the Old Testament is a a series of historical stories, uh, we understand that there's bound to be violence. I mean, we know this in our day and age as well. Whenever we've got people involved, bad things are going to happen. And so um, we've got all these different conflicts between people individuals, and we've got conflicts between people groups, but we decided to isolate a different question that does away with the human element of violence itself. And so through that, we we said, you know what, there's actually indications of God putting this warfare, this responsibility of violence directly on his shoulder in some incidences. And so we asked the question, why in the world would God command the Israelites to kill the Canaanites? How could this violence be just? And as I mentioned last week, the idea that God is angry, angry, that he's violent, that he's controlling, he's racist, he's vindictive, he's even unjust, these ideas are actually not uncommon ideas. They're now being offered by a number of people as the real version, the true version of the identity of God. And there's a number of of best-selling atheist authors that support this claim and that prove this claim through their various assertions. And so I raise these questions because chances are you may have thought some of these very things about the nature of God, but even more than that, you probably know someone who is asking these very same questions or who has developed this opinion themselves. It might be your father, could be your cousin, it could be to the, the person that you talk with on occasion during your lunch break at work. It might be someone that you aren't speaking with right now, but it might be a message that's preparing you for a conversation in the future. The person who's going to buy the home around the corner from your house in a couple of years from now, or a future conversation with your daughter or your nephew. So when they ask these questions about how could a loving God be so violent, what are you going to say? What sort of response will you have from your reading of the scriptures and from your own experiences? Well, as we look again at the book of Lamentations, uh, there's this tone that kind of ebbs and flows as we've walked through these chapters. And I want to pick it up again because even though in chapter 2 God is described like an enemy, in chapter 3 he is listening. 
and he is near. And in verses 34 to 39 in chapter 3, uh, we read that, that despite these momentary events of life, God oversees everything and his ways are just. And so this will be our introductory text this morning, uh, chapter 3, verses 34 through 39. If people crush underfoot all the prisoners of the land, if they deprive others of their rights in defiance of the Most High, if they twist justice in the courts, doesn't the Lord see all these things? Who can command things to happen without the Lord's permission? Does not the Most High send both calamity and good? Then why should we, mere humans, complain when we are punished for our sins? Now, if we believe that God is indeed good, it's easier for us to stomach the tough times. Even the times that don't make a lot of sense to us. Even the times that we disagree with. Because we believe that God is still in control. And we believe that God is just in his specific actions, ultimately. But if we doubt the goodness of God, then we're faced with a whole truckload of other questions. Some of which we looked at last week. And instead of raising new questions yet again and kind of getting turned all over the place with what we're trying to identify, um, I ask that uh, if you missed last week's message, you go back onto our website and listen to the first part of it because maybe a question that you're asking today is one that we were able to speak about yesterday. So I want to return back to this, this struggle, this idea of God is not only loving and compassionate and redeeming, he's also violent and he's also wrathful. And so I'm going to jump in from where I left off last week as making this kind of the second part of the two-part response and look at different frameworks. These are frameworks that don't necessarily provide solutions to our questions, but hopefully give us better context for understanding what is happening in the Old Testament and how are we to understand biblical history. And so uh, I refer once again to Christopher Wright and his book called The God I Don't Understand because I very much use this as a template for my uh, responses both both last week and today. And so the first two frameworks that we looked at were the Old Testament story, putting that into context, and then also the frame of God's sovereign justice. And so as we addressed God's justice, we came to the conclusion that God not only punished the Israelites and other nations for their wickedness, he also carried out his judgment against Israel. And this is why we saw last week the description of God being described as an enemy. It's because of Israel's disobedience against God that God has turned against them for the sake of his own justice being carried out. And that is the biblical understanding of why the Canaanites were driven out of the land, why they were killed, was because it was in response to God's justice. This is what God had asked the Israelites to do. And even though the stories of God driving out the Canaanites through the hands of the Israelites are well remembered, There were far more generations of Israelites that felt the judgment of God at the hand of their enemies than that single generation of Canaanites. And as we remember the many nations that existed before and during the years of the ancient Israelites, we should also remember that God not only used these nations to carry out his divine justice, he also had a history of rescuing these other nations from oppression and wickedness that they endured from other nations. I think there's this this concept of sort of Israel, they're the favored people of God. For whatever reason, they, just, they, they drew a great card out of the deck, and God uses these group of people, and so he kind of, dis, when they do things that are wrong, he sort of overlooks it, and he just continues to bless them at the expense of these other nations that didn't have God revealed to them in this way. 
And the interesting thing is, is we actually have a number of texts without the Bible that say something very different. And so I, I want to point to uh, the fact that Israel being redeemed out of Egypt, being saved out of oppression, is not necessarily a unique story. God apparently did similar acts to other people groups, but these rescue missions just aren't talked about very much throughout the Bible. So for example, and if you have your Bible and you want to flip around because we're going to be doing that a bit this morning, listen to what God says to the prophet Amos. Chapter 9, the book of Amos, beginning in verse 7. Are not you Israelites the same to me as the Cushites, declares the Lord? Did I not bring Israel up from Egypt, the Philistines from Kaftor, and the Arameans from Kerr? Strange passage, huh? Now remember that the reason why God saved Israel out of Egypt was because he heard their cries for help. He heard their cries. He saw the, impression, the oppression and the slavery that they were under there in Egypt, and he decided to take action. His actions should be understood of, as both deeds of mercy and also deeds of judgment against the Egyptians. So he rescues the people who were treated harshly as slaves, and then he judged the oppressive Egyptians and their false gods through those plagues, many of which were very violent. And based on what we see here in the book of Amos, what happened in Egypt was not entirely unique. We don't know the full extent of these other stories of the, the, um, the Cushites and the Philistines and the Arameans. We don't know all of what was going on there. But Israel is compared to these other nations in the same way. God's redemptive work is compared to what he does with these other people. And that's not all. We've got more evidence as well. God compares the conquest of the Canaanites with other invasions and other conquests that had already taken place in history by other nations. And so many of us, when we hear this, and I'll include myself in this, when we read some of these horrific battle scenes of Canaanites being wiped out, and we think, how could this possibly happen? How could this be just? There's actually other instances of this happening as well. We just don't know very much about it. And to be honest, they really don't disturb us all that much compared to what we do know. And we find out that some of these other nations being moved or killed off or annihilated, this also is understood as being sovereignly managed by Yahweh, the God of Israel. And so I'll mention now the book of Deuteronomy, and you can flip over to chapter 2 if you would like. Deuteronomy is kind of a repetitive book. It gives a summary of what's been happening in the books prior to it. And so we hear Moses say a number of things and just sort of telling the people of God, hey, this is who you are, this is what God's been doing for you, and this is where your future is is going to land. So in chapter 2, verse 16, the people are reminded about some specific instructions that God is giving them about where they should travel and which nations they should avoid. They've now been rescued out of Egypt. They're in the wilderness, and God's basically telling them, this is where you're you're to go and make sure you don't get too close to these people because I have some other future uh, plan for them. And this passage is almost never read out loud because of the difficulty in pronouncing the names. So you're going to have fun with me as I try to do this. But listen carefully, beginning in verse 19, to what happens uh, here. This is the Lord speaking. He says to the Israelites, When you come to the Ammonites, do not harass them or provoke them to war, for I will not give you possession of any land belonging to the Ammonites. I have given it as a possession to the descendants of Lot. So basically saying, don't bother those people. That's not your land. And you shouldn't be worried about them. That's someone else's land, and I'm going to take care of it. Then we get into verse 20, and it might even be in in parentheses in your Bible. That too was considered a lamb of the Rephites, who used to live there. But the Ammonites called them Zamzumites. They were people strong and numerous and as tall as the Anakites. The Lord destroyed them. 
from before the Ammonites, who drove them out and settled in their place. The Lord had done the same for the descendants of Esau, who lived in Seir, when he destroyed the Harites from before them. They drove them out and have lived in, this, in their place to this day. And as for the Avites, who lived in the villages as far as Gaza, the Kaphtarites, coming out of Kaphtar, destroyed them and settled in their place. What does all this mean? <laughs> who cares about any of this stuff? Well, listen, this is pretty significant. Apparently, God was just as involved in the judgment and movement of these other na- nations as he was in the displacement of the Canaanites. Now, it's pretty rare for anyone to be bothered about the Zamzumites being destroyed. In all my times of pastoral ministry and reading books and interacting with people, I've never heard anyone say, how in the world could God destroy the Zamzamites? You don't hear that, right? As Christopher Wright says in his book, most of of this account here is placed in parentheses in our Bibles. It's almost as if the translators had their own difficulty figuring out who these peoples were and said, who who are the Zamzamites? Who are the Kaphtarites? Who cares? No one cares about that. Let's put them in brackets, okay? If people really want to read about it, they can, but no one's going to read that out loud. It's almost like they said, God destroyed these people? Who are they? So what? But then the Canaanites are destroyed, and most people say, what? How terrible. How could a loving and just God ever do this? But in all of these cases, apparently from what we read in the story, God was at work. God was using these people and delivering his justice, delivering his judgment all in due time. Now, we know some of these stories better than others, but if we claim that God is not only just but sovereign in his justice, meaning that he's both aware of what is happening and in control ultimately of what is happening, then as difficult as it might be for us to accept, we must come to grips with the fact that there are times in the Old Testament when God chooses to enact particular judgments for the sake of his ultimate plan. Now, you don't have to believe in God's sovereign justice. I'm guessing some of you don't believe in his sovereign justice. But even if you don't, you're then left with a number of other questions. And those will demand your attention as well. I offered a few of these ideas last week as we searched for possible explanations for why there's so much violence in the Bible. But now let's turn to this question of God's ultimate plan. No matter how we try to make sense of the Canaanite conquest, it's a dark story, right? It's difficult to read. It's difficult to think through. So how does it fit into the larger story of the Bible? I mean, if we say, okay, well, the Canaanites uh, being annihilated and driven out and extinguished, if that's really part of God's greater plan, then what is his greater plan? Because usually killing off people doesn't seem to, to bring about uh, an ultimate plan that any of us would envision as being good. Well, I'll defer once again to Christopher Wright and his book because I'm going to use his third framework that he uses there. And the third framework is God's plan of salvation. God's plan for salvation. Every story that we read in the Bible is a, is a small piece of the entire Bible. So we're looking here at, at kind of the whole trajectory of what's, what's this hope? How are we moving towards salvation? This is what our, ch- our children do at Kids at the Ridge. They, they, li- they read one story and they get a sense of what's the big God story? How does this small little story fit into the grand scheme of what is happening, into this whole redemption plan? We found out who God is. We found out who, why God created us, how we get ourselves into trouble. Now, how is he going to save us from all of this stuff? And so within this larger story, we don't read about a God who's vastly different in the Old Testament than we do in the New Testament, even though it's tempting to pit those two testaments against 
each, each other. We actually encounter a God who is consistently responsible, and he responds in his love and justice for the sake of the people he created. So it shouldn't surprise us that for all the accounts of war and bloodshed that we have, we also have a strong and steady voice for peace. And we see this in the Old Testament as well. There's this vision of peace that often collides with the the ambitions of the surrounding nations around Israel. Wright explains at one point that it was very customary when times of war were happening, that after a, a battle, when a when a fighting general felt like his nation had been victorious, that then they would erect some sort of, of a statute of a god, or they'd build a temple of worship for their gods as kind of a tribute and saying, this is what we've done. Uh, thank, the gods have blessed us. We've defeated this army, and this is what we have now done. And it may have been motivated by this. Maybe it was motivated by something else. We don't know for sure. But King David, in a way, kind of seemed to do something similar. He had gone through all types of war and expanding Israel's territory. And then he says to God, I'm going to build you a temple. I want to build you a temple. And God says, no. And God's reason for denying his request, David had been a man of war and bloodshed. And God didn't want it built under someone's reign who had that sort of reputation. Even though there was many times when David had been told by God to go ahead out in war, he still understood not only those activities, but other things that he has done as being incredibly violent, and he distanced himself from that. Despite all the times where warfare is commanded by God as a means of enacting justice, there's this simultaneous uneasiness that we read about in the Psalms, in the wisdom literature, and in the prophets. There's this anticipation that there's going to become a day when all of this won't be necessary, when it will look a little bit different, when a new path will emerge. We even see this in the prophecies of Jesus about this messianic king who will come, and he will destroy the weapons of war, and there will be peace. And there's also this fulfillment of this promise that was originally given in Genesis 12 to Abraham that all the peoples of the earth will be blessed. They will be blessed through Abraham's descendants. And so we have this trajectory of of Israel being used to bless all the nations as part of this ongoing story. And so God uses Israel to spread his blessing. And the whole purpose of him bringing Israel into this covenant relationship was so other nations would eventually be brought into a covenant relationship as well. And Wright explains it this way. He says the overall thrust of the Old Testament is not Israel against the nations, but Israel for the sake of the nations. This is the vision. This is the embodiment of the mission of Israel. It sounds inspiring, doesn't it? Probably doesn't sound as inspiring if you were a Canaanite, right? Because part of this mission apparently was also bringing about God's justice. And I can't help that they didn't feel too blessed as their cities and their children and their entire people group were wiped out. Well, this is how Wright explains what happened there. He says, what we need to understand, what we need to see, is that the Bible feels no contradiction between the ultimate goal of universal blessing and historical acts of particular judgment. It's important to see the blessing of the nations as God's ultimate or his eschatological purpose. It does not mean that God would therefore have to be nice to everybody or every nation, no matter how they behaved. So even though we feel this tension, God is still willing to take action. Even though this is 
it creates some uneasiness as we read this and think this through and try to make sense of it in the grand purpose of thing. Uh, we see actually, according to the, what we see in the biblical story, it actually is part of God's plan for redemption and for salvation. It's not just the Canaanites. They aren't the only ones. There's other nations. Israel herself. They, there's a long-term blessing that comes with this, but it does not stop God from ultimately blessing Israel by taking specific generations and punishing them for their disobedience. It's not all that unsimilar to a parent who disciplines their child for a specific purpose, for a specific rationale, for the overall betterment of that child's future development. Now, thankfully, we don't have to just rely on theological truths and smart people that write books that try to help us make sense of it. We actually have some specific examples in the Bible that point to this understanding of a particular judgment, one isolated, or should, I shouldn't say isolated, one specific incidence where God's justice and his judgment are going to be poured out for the sake of better things in the future and for the overall good of redemption. So in the book of Joshua, and Joshua is a book that really outlines most all of the Canaanite uh, conflict and the conquest there, one of the first stories we read in chapter 2 is not about any warfare at all, not about any bloodshed at first, but it's actually a conversion story. We're introduced to a woman, a Canaanite woman named Rahab. And like other people in the, in the region, Rahab had heard about the Israelites. She was full of, of what we would call the fear of God, this understanding of there's a group of people here. Things are happening through this, this group of people, and, and the God that they serve is significant. We're going to hear some of the words that she uses in just a moment. And so uh, Joshua, he sends spies out on the land, and this is the battle of Jericho coming up, and I believe it's chapter 4 and 5. And in chapter 2, the spies, uh, they, they come in contact with Rahab there at her home, and she basically says that she wants them to show kindness to her and her family. She even tells them that she knows that the Lord their God, and she uses the name of the Israelite God, Yahweh, not just a generic God, but she says, I know that the Lord your God has given the land to them, which seems to indicate that she's aware of the impending judgment that's coming. She's aware that me and my people are living in this region, but I know that this isn't our land. I know that judgment is coming. And so she makes a choice to repent, to turn her life on her former life, and to reach out to Israel's God. And so this story actually tells us that the Canaanite problem was not their ethnicity. It had nothing to do with their people group or their color or their skin or the language that they spoke. It had to do with their idolatry. Rahab chooses to reject the gods of the Canaanites, and her life is spared. Now, is it possible that Rahab had neighbors, maybe across the way, and they didn't have spies come to their home, and these neighbors would have repented if they would have had the chance as well to meet with some Israelites and to find out about their God and, and to repent and have their lives saved as well? I think it's possible. We really have no way of knowing the what-ifs in that particular story. We also have no way of knowing with certainty the ultimate fate of the Canaanites. And what I mean by this is, even if there were righteous people who died when the walls of Jericho fell, the death of the Canaanites was a result of a particular judgment not the final judgment. So we should not automatically think in our minds that every person who died when they were part of a people group that was deemed to be uh, evil and who were killed off, we should not automatically think that they're also eternally condemned. There's a lot that we don't know about what that final judgment day looks like. 
What we do know is that there's cases in history where God takes a, a, a specific case and he acts out in judgment, but we don't always know what happens from there. But let me offer another question. Could there be other cases of conversion that happened that we don't read about in the Old Testament? Basically, is Rahab really the only example we have? Because if it is, boy, that's just a pretty small group of people when you think about all the other people who were wiped out. Well, even within the Old Testament, she's not the only one. We have a number of other examples. In fact, we have an entire group of people. They're called the Jebusites. Getting a whole bunch of great names today, aren't we? Now, the Jebusites are a curious example because they almost seem to go against everything that we hear about or think about what was happening during this time. The Jebusites are Canaanites, basically. They're a group of people called the Jebusites, but they live within this land that's promised to Israel. And there's a number of different lists that we read about in the Old Testament of the different people groups that are to be wiped out, and their land is, is going to be given to the Israelites. As Christopher Wright says in his book, the Jebusites were on the hit list, okay? And and there's one text there in Deuteronomy. They're included as these people that are to be completely destroyed. But as I mentioned last week, uh, sometimes there's war rhetoric that's used. Sometimes we don't always know if these people are completely annihilated as they claim to have been uh, because it's kind of an understanding of the speaking of the day when you are celebrating your victories. And so if we look at the book of Joshua, even though in Deuteronomy and other cases they are told to be completely destroyed, in the book of Joshua, these people are still around. The, the word that's used in the book of Joshua is that these people could not be dislodged, okay? They were clingers, apparently. It was like those kids, you know, and, and they don't want to leave something, and they, and they wrap their arms around your leg, and you can't get them off. They could not be dislodged. These Jebusites were a pesky people. And so then years later, it's not just this one incident. Years later, they're living in, in Jerusalem, ironically. They're living in Jerusalem with the people of God, with the Israelites. And you would think that would be a little bit awkward, having your neighbors, the Jebusites, knowing, hey, we were supposed to completely annihilate you, but apparently you guys are just kind of hanging out. And now we're doing life together in Jerusalem. And there's years later, King David, he finally captures Jerusalem. But you know what? They're not destroyed. They're not killed off. They're actually absorbed into the tribe of Judah. So at one time, these are a group of people that are destined for destruction, but somehow they become included within God's covenant people. Crazy. And I think, even though we don't know all the parts of the story, there's some redemption going on there. Perhaps there's some conversion happening. Maybe they are responding. Maybe they're being blessed by these people who are supposed to be blessing the nations through these things happening. But the Jebusites become even more interesting because they are cited as an example for what will happen to some other nations as well. Their stories compared to the future of the Philistines. Now, it's, um, it's the weekend of March Madness in the Final Four. So I was thinking earlier this week, if we had to list all the arch enemies of, of Israel, the Philistines would have a really good chance of winning that tournament. I mean, the Philistines are hated, hated arch enemies of the Israelites. I'd probably put them at a number one seed if we had a field of uh, 16 or of, of 64. But listen, this is crazy. Go to the book of, of Zechariah, chapter 9. These are the curious words of the prophet Zechariah. He says, Those who are left, and he's speaking about the Philistines in this context, will belong to God. Language there is a remnant. We've heard of this language before. A remnant of God, it's, it's in response to those who continue to be faithful. They're this smaller group of a larger group. And Zechariah is saying, there's going to be some Philistines left, 
and they will belong to God. These are actually a remnant of God people. And they will become leaders in Judah. And Ekron, which is a Philistine city, will be like the Jebusites. Now, I realize that not all of you are excited about this as I am, but think about this, okay? It would, it would be way too tame to say that these words are shocking. The Philistines, people, we're talking about the Philistines, right? Goliath, the Philistines, Israel hates the Philistines. And what we see here is that God's plan is for all the nations to be blessed. And so if that's true, why not the Philistines? The Philistines are compared to the Jebusites. The Jebusites were people who were supposed to be completely destroyed, but who were absorbed into Israel. And so we actually have this understanding of God saying, you know what? I've got a remnant of Philistines too. I've got a group of people within these people that you don't think belong, and they will be faithful to me. It's part of my redemption plan. Now, if we wanted to, we could go further. We could look at the Old Testament law, for example. We could point out all the provisions that are made to to protect the foreigners. But it's just as easy for me to summarize it by saying the simple command was, love the foreigner. We see it over and over and over again. These were not to be individual people that were harassed, that were denied different rights. These were to be people who were to be protected, who were to be included into the group. So if there were times of warfare and there were people from other groups that were captured and brought in, if it's a case like the, the uh, Jebusites where there's different backgrounds and they're part of it, the understanding was you are to love these people. Treat the foreigners well. It's not about the color of their skin. It's not about where they came from. It has nothing to do with ethnicity. This is an understanding of when they're drawn in, then we treat them well. And then this command is, is commanded almost verbatim in the New Testament as well. We'll see that in just a moment. And it's all part of this original vision to be a blessing to the people. But in spite of all this content, and through all these examples and all of this future hope, I'm guessing that there's still a question that lingers in many of your minds, maybe even from last week as well, and it's by far and away the most practical question of all. If, God's, if God is intentionally violent, if God actually initiates and carries out his judgment, and we read about this all throughout the Old Testament, if this stuff is real, then how can you and I possibly expect to be a people of peace? I mean, how can a violent God call us to be peaceful people? Can't we just be like the Israelites? Uh, Can't God just tell us to to wipe out the people in Surrey who are wicked? I live in Surrey. I mean, can't we just take revenge on on our, our co-worker because we know our co-worker and she is terrible? Like, can't we just do the same sort of thing? Can't God speak to us and say, just take her out, you know, in whatever, whatever way that might look like in our world today? How does this work? Like, how can this same God who is full of wrath and judgment and violence in some of these stories, how can he then expect us to be peaceful? Now, I grew up uh, going to church and learning these stories, and the belief that I had had accepted or come to, come to recognize as a child was the primary purpose of reading the Bible was not just so that I could learn more about God, but so I could become more like God. That was one of the primary examples. So how am I supposed to be a person of peace when there's story and story after story of God being a God of justice and carrying that out in violent ways? Well, my response to this question was uh, clarified quite well uh, by another friend of ours in the 
the MB Church family, Jeff Bucknum, the lead pastor of Northview Church in Abbotsford. He preached a sermon called The God of War uh, just earlier this month. And he asked this same question during that message, and I'm going to offer precisely the same words that he does uh, because he said it so well. How can a violent God expect us to be peaceful? It's precisely because of God's judgment that we can be a people of peace. Because God is a God of judgment, it allows you and I to be a people of peace. If you're wondering how this works, flip over to the book of Romans with me. Romans is uh, after the book of Acts and after the four Gospels in the New Testament. And it lays out a number of, of theological frameworks, understanding of how we should now live as people who have been redeemed by Jesus. And as we get into chapter 12, we get that this is now how you're supposed to live. Understanding all these different things, here is now how you should live. And within chapter 12, there's a number of very, very concise commandments that, that are, are great to look at and great to, to um, work out in your life. In fact, in verse 13 of chapter 12, we have uh, two very short words in English. Practice hospitality. Many of you have probably heard that before. Practice to- hospitality. A better translation of that from the Greek is love the stranger. That's basically exactly what it means. And we get that same theme from the Old Testament. It's not just practice hospitality. Be nice to those that you like. The idea is, no, you seek out those You seek out the foreigners, those who are different, and you love them. You love the outsider. But I'm getting ahead of myself, or before myself, actually, because we're going to verse 17 is what we want to look at. How can a violent God expect us to be peaceful? Verse 17, do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it's possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my friends, but leave room for God's wrath. Because it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. Why are you and I told to live at peace with others? Simply because God will take care of the justice. Vengeance does not appear on any one of our job descriptions. If you've entered into a relationship with Jesus, if you've given him your life and said, I am now going to surrender my ways. I'm no longer the boss. I'm going to do everything I can to follow you and to be obedient to you. There's nothing in your job description and God's call on your life to be a person of vengeance. In fact, it's only when we recognize that vengeance is not ours that we're empowered by the Spirit of God with the strength and the courage and the grace that we need to resist the temptation to repay evil with evil. Vengeance is a hunger that never seems to satisfy. And I think the reason it never satisfies is because we were never designed to feed on it. And so, you can choose to rid yourself of the responsibility of hanging on to this goal of getting even because you can be assured that one day, every single person will meet the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords on a final judgment day. And he or she will be judged according to his perfect righteousness and his perfect justice. Now, our primary motivation for not seeking vengeance is simply the conviction that justice belongs to God. And this is good news. This is great news because what this means is that instead of us carrying out our justice in the world against those who have wronged us, it's not a responsibility that we have to shoulder any longer. And I know for a lot of you, this is a huge burden. It's kind of a, the same picture if, if you've ever rolled the, the, 
the classic story of Pilgrim's Progress where he has this backpack, which is a representative symbolic of his sins and the weight of the world. Many of us have this backpack of feeling like we need to get even. We need to get revenge. We need to pay someone back. And we see this all throughout our our world. People who have been wronged, horrifically so, but it seems like vengeance never satisfies. And the response that we have through the teachings of the Bible is that this is not our role. This is not for us to do. We look to the God who saves, the God who redeems, and the God who judges, and then we let him do his work. And while I hope that this image of God is received to you as good news, this image of a God who is both peaceful and also full of wrath, this God who comes to save and redeem and deliver, and also who will carry out complete justice, sometimes violently, and in the end, that is the picture that we have of ultimate justice. This may not make sense to you. This may, in fact, be a very big obstacle in your life. It might be a barrier for you allowing yourself to trust God further and for you saying, okay, God, I can accept this as part of your character. I'm going to entrust my life to you. It also might be an obstacle for some people that you know. They might be asking these same questions. How can this God that you serve, how can this God that's out here who's supposed to be nice, who created this world and and has a plan for everyone's life, how in the world could that type of God respond in judgment that way? I don't want to serve a God like that. I don't believe that type of God can exist. This may not just be a message for you to hear this morning. This might be a message for you to continue to think about and read about so that you can hopefully, uh, you can help those other people walk through those same questions that they have. So as a response to today's message, I ask that we pray. I ask that we would pray for ourselves to make sense of this picture of God. I ask that we'd pray for those in our lives who are probably struggling with some of these questions. Maybe people who stopped going to church, who left the faith, who couldn't make sense of of this image of God. Maybe those who have never had any interest and maybe this idea of a judge a judging God, a God of justice, a God of violent warfare is one of those reasons. And so, let's pray. Let's pray for those individuals. Let's pray for those conversations that we will have in the future. And we have people here that are willing to pray with you and listen to you this morning, even if you just want to vent, even if you just want to talk about how you personally don't feel like God is being fair to you in a particular situation in your life. Maybe it's for someone that you specifically want to pray for, a family member, a co-worker, who says, this is a message, this is something that I think this person struggles with, and I want the courage to be able to ask them questions and to speak to them, because ultimately, it's about blessing others. It's about this, this big story of, of restoration of the people to God. If you would like to do that, we have people here who are willing to pray. Uh, Pastor Brad, Aaron, myself. I'm sure we have more people too. I just can't think of their names right now. So we're going to to enter a time of prayer. We're also going to enter a time of responding by singing. And so if you would like to, to sing, feel free to stand and sing. If you would like to sit quietly and pray, you can do that as well. Uh, please come and seek out those who are happy to listen to you and to pray as well. And let's begin our response by, time by doing just that. Father God, we know that you are a God of grace. We also know that you are a God of justice. And God, I thank you for giving us capacity to understand you to the degree that we do. But I ask for further 
capacity, Lord. I ask for further understanding and appreciation of your very nature. That the things that in our minds sometimes don't see like they can work together, that they contradict themselves, uh, that in your complete holiness, you do that with absolute justice. Not justice as we often see it, but justice as you completely define it. And you know our hearts, Lord. You know the hearts of all the people throughout history. And so, God, I want to thank you that you are the one given that responsibility to judge. I want to thank you, Lord, that we do not have to take that upon ourselves. And I pray, Lord, for those of us who are struggling through the time of being hurt by what's been going on in our lives as those others around us have wronged us, I pray, Lord, that you would provide healing. I pray, God, that we'd be offered, able to offer that to you and that you would restore those who are hurting and that you would provide wisdom for those of us as we seek to repair some of the relationships that are broken. God, we ultimately give you honor because you're the one that are worthy of it. And so, God, we offer our prayers to you. We offer our prayers for those who are far from you, God, struggling with some of these same questions. And we ask that your spirit would communicate to them in ways that they would understand and that you would draw people to yourself, Lord. Amen.